It's also challenging internally too, because every role and department will then have their own recruiting team. Um, so they're not always set up by function either. So a situation where the left hand may not know what the right hand's doing, where a, can <laughs> like a candidate may want one opportunity, but then they have to talk to a completely different department. That was a challenge we had also at Google, just the scale and the scope. And there was a lot of technical positions there. And welcome to another episode of Hiring Behind the Scenes, where we try to unpack and demystify the job search by talking to experts in the process. And these are folks that are doing hiring, be it being recruiters or hiring managers. This week, we're with Harry Stone. Harry's worked at some incredible companies like Google, JP Morgan, TikTok, and we actually shared some time together at WeWork. We're gonna talk about strategic networking and how key it is in the job search and how you shouldn't do it just when you start job searching. We're gonna talk about communicating with recruiters and what's the right way to reach out. We're gonna talk about asking thoughtful questions. Don't ask those things that you could just Google in advance. Harry's got some great insights on how to look prepared. And then lastly, we're gonna talk about onboarding. Harry really cares deeply about the preparation that you do once you get into the company and setting yourself up for success. So it's a great episode packed with lots of insightful tips. So I hope you enjoy it. Hey everyone, and welcome back for another episode of Hiring Behind the Scenes. For this episode, we are with Harry Stone, who I had the pleasure of working with at WeWork, and he's worked at a ton of really incredible companies. He's got great logos on his resume, but I much prefer to have people brag about themselves. So Harry, tell us a little bit about yourself. Sure. I'm Harry Stone. So great to reconnect with you, Dave, on the podcast. I do love everything that you're doing at Teal and seeing the fanfare across LinkedIn and just the from the users is awesome to see. Um, a little bit about myself, I'm a career pivoter. So I started out as a mortgage underwriter before moving into the world of recruiting, which is where I've been for the past nine years. I have worked in a variety of companies such as JP Morgan, Google, WeWork, and TikTok. And in my most recent role, I was a recruiting leader at TikTok, helping to scale the organization across the Americas. I'm so happy to dive deeper into some of our topics today around job searching and then also onboarding and helping to give a new perspective as people are thinking through that. Awesome. So many fun things to talk about, you know, high volume hiring. You know, I'm sure you made a lot of hires in both places. You've been part of high growth teams. You know, and there's just so much nuance to recruiting, which is really, you know, why we're doing this show is I think there's a lot of job search advice that's given in absolutes. And the truth is, it's always, it depends. Like context really matters. If a recruiter has 50 recs to fill versus two recs to fill, if they're junior positions versus senior positions. And so there really is no one right answer to anything. On the other side, it's a very human process. Like as much as people want to think there's bots and computers, it's a human being that decides. So look, some people are stickler for typos and some people are not. You know, so you kind of have to try to solve for everything, but let's dive into it. So as a recruiter, what have you seen be the most effective ways to be contacted, right? There's a lot of talking about networking. If we think about the front end of the process, it's like right now, this is being recorded in June of 2023. You know, it's a little trickier in, I'd say like the tech world. So, you know, and then you hear people talk about don't apply online, apply online. I'm kind of a do everything kind of person. But there is something to building relationships and networking because I see those as career assets that 
last way beyond the job search. And if you're doing that right, you're building relationships that have staying power. So what have you seen be successful tactics to that more kind of one-on-one high-touch communication as it relates to seeking opportunities? Yeah, I think networking is definitely a key aspect. And when I think of networking, it's networking strategically, like not just networking to have a conversation. It's you want to get one of two pieces of information. You want to get get to know people in their network, so other humans that you can interact with, or you want information. How do you do a role? How do you do a job? What are the different resources and tools that you can connect with? So it's really thinking about how do you build those relationships that then can branch out into getting more information or getting to know more people. Um, But when it comes to networking, I think for me, it's always about planting seeds. If it's not something for today, it's what seed can I plant? Who can I reconnect with? Where can this potentially go in the future? Maybe it's not for this second and right now, but they might know somebody else or there might be an opportunity down the road that we can reconnect on. And it's about keeping that constant communication of maybe it's a touch base once every quarter, once every year, once every other year, you're meeting up in person, you're grabbing a coffee. So it's creating these real um, relationships that can really move you past right here in the now and thinking about what that future might hold. Um, I think also during this time when the market is in a flux, I think it's important to really expand how you're looking for roles. For me personally right now, oddly enough, applying to jobs is actually getting me more hits than sometimes relying on some of the relationships I have. And so it's really thinking about what are the companies that are growing? What are the ones that you're interested in? Who do you potentially know that works there that can make introductions? And how do you continue to work strategically towards finding these opportunities? Let's talk a little bit about cold outreach versus warm outreach, right? Because I think there's a lot of, like, one of the things we try to do on this show is like debunk the myths. And there's this like, here's the, you know, six minute abs version of how to land a job, uh, which, you know, it's, it's hard work. It doesn't really work that way. So as someone who is the recipient of these different kinds of outreach, like what have you seen be successful in these kind of two categories of like cold, this person has zero connection to me, but they still communicated effectively versus someone who was able to get an intro or some level of connection, which we'll call warm. So I don't know, can you talk me to through kind of both of those and what have you seen work? Yeah, I receive cold messages all the time. So what's worked for me is if the person is very specific and what they need help with, if they say, Hi, Harry, this is a role I applied to. Here's my resume. Here's the information I need. Can you connect me with this individual, whoever's supporting this role? That immediately helps me out because some companies are thousands of recruiters, there's thousands of hiring managers, and you don't always have access to all of the information as far as who's owning the position in the role and where the candidates are in the process. So if somebody is reaching out coldly and if I'm in a recruiter role, then I think just providing that level of information of this is the specific position that I applied to that I'm interested in. Here's the job number. Can you help me? You know, if that's simple and quick, great. Otherwise, if someone reaches out, I get reached out to all the time from students that are graduating from college that are in engineering or some type of technical world. And I've never really covered technical positions or engineering positions. I don't cover campus recruitment. So it's 
that's something where I can't necessarily help those individuals. So I think it takes a little bit more research on what types of roles is this person posting on their LinkedIn? What kind of information are they presenting online? So you can then really map that out as a potential candidate and say, this recruiter might be able to help me with this. And this is the specific role that I applied to and I'm qualified for these reasons. For the Warm leads, I think it's a little bit different depending on the relationship that you have. I think it makes it um, sometimes easier just at least to have an introductory conversation for that person to feel like if they really value that person's opinion and their their personal relationship, then they might think a little bit more highly of who they're referring in to have that conversation. So it may be a road that you know leads down a dead end, but at the same time, it creates this conversation that can potentially lead towards other directions. Going back to the cold introduction, you know, I've referenced this, I think, on the show before when I was talking to Bonnie. I always think of the Jerry Maguire, help me help you. You know, it's like, I think it's really important, and I can't stress this enough, that you really need to take as much work off the person's plate as possible. If you're like, hey, I see you work at... TikTok, any open positions. I also think we have a very good sense for like how much effort a person put in. And it's like, you did nothing. Like that's public information. You know, that is on our career page. So I think it's, I'm going to put out what you put in. And if it's minimal effort and you're just like spraying the same template over and over again, at least the perception of it. This is where I think things like AI become really powerful, right? Because it can feel more bespoke and it can feel like it took more effort. Again, it also looks the other way around if you don't tweak it at all. So like if you put in zero effort, people can tell. And I think alleviating some of that pressure on the person to try to be helpful, because I think we all want to be helpful and recruiters in general want to be helpful. They want to fill the position. So it, it can be very much a win-win, but you got to do it right. Yeah, definitely. And what the candidate may not realize is that the recruiter could be working on sometimes 30, 40 plus positions if they're in a high volume space and dealing with that many applicants already through the system and then having LinkedIn and then having their email and then having pings to look at, it just gets to be, the person gets stretched very thin. So the more information you can give and be specific about what you want help with, that's where the recruiter could potentially help out if they have the time. They may not have the time, but I think if they do and you can just share with them, I applied to this role, this is my background, this is why I'm qualified, that will speak volumes. The other thing that I, I feel like there's a lot of sort of gray information on is do you apply first so you're in the ATS? You know, we can talk about ATSs. They're not these whatever you're in the database let's call it you know in the essentially like the smart spreadsheet like your name and email is there versus networking and forwarding a resume before submitting an application i think this is what very much it depends like i think bigger companies smaller companies but let's assume you know your background's working at, at larger companies so what's your general recommendation on to reach out before or after applying yeah, I think it's company specific because if you could get a referral, I mean, in some of the applicant tracking systems, a referral gets tagged and then they get moved up to the top of the applicants. That way those have to be reviewed. In other companies, referrals don't matter as much because it's not flagged in the system. So if a referral is a piece of this process, 
sometimes you have to get the referral link first and apply through the referred link to then have that referral attached to your profile. If you apply first, there might not be a back way to merge the referral with your profile, but there are companies where that doesn't matter at all. So I, I hate to maybe not necessarily dispelling anything. <laughs> yeah. Hey, this is what it is. It's that's why it's all so murky. There is no right answer. Are there any like tips or ways for a candidate to discern that, right? Like, you know, can you find out, are there ways to find out if that's part of their process? The only way would have to be asking someone who works there or going on a site like Blind or Fishbowl or some way that you could connect with employees that work there. For what I've seen, like a company like Google, Meta, like those have very strong referral programs. Whereas when I worked at JP Morgan, that wasn't necessarily part of our process as much as it was within more of the tech space. So I don't know if there's an easy way to really find out about that. You might just have to ask employees. But I think for the application piece, the one thing to be mindful of is if you are applying, just to know that every application you apply to is visible to the recruiters. If you apply to 100 jobs, that's going to be visible and that could cause some questions and red flags to say, you know, does this person know what they want and do they know what type of role that they've applied to? And so I think that's something to also just be a little bit mindful of is being specific on what you're looking for, applying to those opportunities. And then if there is a referral process, trying to get in the system that way. Yeah, I've had that happen before. We're little. And so I see pretty much every application that comes in and the same person will apply to like three positions. And I had, I think I had like a product designer and like a social media manager. And look, I was super excited. They were passionate about Teal and they'll just like, I'll do whatever. But it's really counterintuitive that this I'll do whatever may feel like a really great attitude to put out into the world and as an energy, but it's actually quite repelling at least in my opinion, again, someone might be like, that's awesome for me. I love it. But my general from talking to people is that that is when we hire, we hire for specificity. We don't gen, well, we don't usually hire for generality, right? It's like, I've got a gap. I opened up a JD and that's why I opened this position. So it's like, I remember when I, I used to work for my dad, who was a contractor and he had pretty hard, strong beliefs on this. I'd like bring, I managed all of our bidding and I'd be like, look at this guy. He does roofing and plumbing. Like, I don't have to manage all these vendors. And he goes, then he's not good at any of them. You know, that was kind of his like belief. If like he can do all those, if he can do air conditioning, roofing and plumbing, he can't be good at any of them. And I think that there's a little bit of that that comes into the hiring processes. I got to know that at the very least you have a major. Like, I got to know you're passionate about this. I got to know you're good at this thing because that's the gap I'm trying to fill. Versus being like, oh yeah, I can do some video editing. I can do social media. Oh, I've done some Figma before. It's like, I kind of don't want a jack of all trades. And then we can talk about this a little bit when we get to the onboarding, because I actually think once you get in, then you can flex some of those muscles. But I really don't think that in the recruiting process and in the job application process is the time to do that. Right. And with companies at the moment, having less headcount to fill, they're going to be more specific on what they want as far as the talent that's coming into the organization. So I agree with that. I think it's important to know what are your strengths? What, what are you a subject matter expert in? And how can you find the opportunities that can help amplify that? 
I think it's a really good point. And I think this is a way that we can do research because like, there's only so much information out there. But I think that if we become a little bit more detective-like in the job search process, there's really interesting signals. And so I think the point you just brought up is a really good one. I'd love for you to like double click into that a little bit is look at the function. And if there's only one job available, like in that function, they're going to be highly selective and their willingness to kind of take a bet and go outside of like what might be the square peg for the square hole is going to be really, really low. But if they've got four or five, then like, okay, we can actually, you know, take some bets on people that maybe don't fit the mold perfectly, but might be incredible. And so it's a little bit higher risk, higher reward. I mean, how have you seen that play out? And like, what are some of the signals just by looking at the jobs that are posted that someone could kind of understand a little from what the company's after? Yeah, I think one of them is if there's a big build out. So if someone's posting, I have 10 roles I'm looking to fill, this is the timeline, and you're going to be part of this new cohort of a team, there's this ability to start thinking about what are the strengths and weaknesses of each of the person joining and how can I start to make my team well-rounded and take people that may not have every box checked on the requirements. But I think also... Even for myself at this moment, just going through interview processes where I've thought, you know, this is potentially a path I want to go on. As I'm having more conversations and I see the types of roles that are posted, I'm realizing I need to actually change my thought process around based on the types of roles that are available, my experience that I have, and how can I best map the experience to what they're looking for to help give me those conversations, to help move me to the next stages and start to think about okay, maybe even though I was open at the time to four or five types of roles, I now need to think about two because these are the two that are available on the market. And I can see myself doing that and maybe in the future it can move to something else. But it's really thinking about what's happening within the job market, what skills do you bring to the table, and then how can you really move, potentially get in front of the right people. Um, but I think those are some of the tips that I would say. And the cohort aspect of it is important. I think if there's multiple roles or it's just more of an opportunity, or if you join a startup that's expanding like crazy, like at TikTok, sometimes we would have the opportunity to hire people that didn't have necessarily all the experience that we were looking for because the team was just growing so quickly that we needed people to join that um, had various skill sets that can help balance out the team overall. While you were there, I don't know if you can answer this, how many hires? in the time that you were there? I think on average, the team that I was a part of was hiring somewhere between around like 200 to 300 full-time employees and then about 250 contractors. But the thing is, these were the first hires on the team. So it's, you're building everything from scratch. Wow. Was that over your whole time there or like on, per month? That was on per year, uh, around on average. Yeah. So it's interesting. So I spoke to a recruiting leader, a global head of recruiting a few weeks ago, and I share the numbers and they're like, well, one of my recruiters hires about a hundred people a year. So like, it didn't seem like a lot to her, but at the same time, they've been around for hundreds of years. And this is the company that just came off the ground in you know the past three years. And so it's building out processes and policies and like, getting first hires and making sure that you can operate in this crazy chaotic way that there's really 
you're building from scratch. And it's just very different. I think we spoke about this initially, just each company will have its own challenges. But I think when you're bringing in the first leaders and the, the first people in each market, and maybe you don't have comp bands, maybe you don't have benefits, maybe you don't have things that you need to make work operate or a company operate, one hire just is so much harder than getting one hire out of a you know, a hundred somewhere else where the company's been around forever. So <laughs> I think the numbers are all relative, but at the same time, it was challenging. Just every single hire was a challenge for us. And I also think the kind of position. So, you know, to get some context around what you were hiring for, like what were functions and seniority levels that you were focused on in your last role? Yeah. So my team covered only HR hiring, which in the past of 2021 to 20 beginning of 2023 was the most competitive space. There was more recruiter roles open than engineer positions. You were recruiting recruiters. Recruiters and then all the other functions within HR. So it was a challenging space to be a part of. Um, And that was across North and South America. So I'm really working through various language uh, skills and thinking about like, how do we operate in this global expansion? One thing that in in the recruiting process is there's uh, for the job seeker, again, kind of the behind the scenes aspect is there's like setting yourself for inbound and then doing outbound. Roughly in your time as a recruiter, what have you seen? You know, we could sort of rough numbers here, but like how many people that were hired were from you or your team as a recruiter doing outbound and prospecting and like finding candidates on a tool like LinkedIn Recruiter versus inbound them coming to you, which would be outbound for the candidate. So I'm mixing up my inbounds and outbounds here. But basically you reach out to them versus them applying. Yeah, for the team that I was most recently a part of, I would say around 50% of our hires, 55% came through outbound sourcing efforts or having to use vendors from time to time. From the inbound applicants, because the space was as I mentioned, the most competitive space to hire recruiters in and business partners, we had to go out and actually headhunt people that were doing these roles and move them into positions. Although applicants, you would think at a company like TikTok or Google or, you know, JP Morgan would be easier to just, you know, everyone's applying and you can get all your hires that way. That's not necessarily the case. And I think it depends how niche the roles are for as sometimes we'd have data scientists we need to hire for our people analytics team. And it's that type of role. You need to go out there and find the talent and then compete against teams that might be doing, you know, more technical work outside of the people space where people would gravitate more towards based on their interests. So sometimes you're even competing across other teams internally. Sometimes you're competing across teams externally or companies externally. So it becomes this um, big challenge. So yeah, I think having a strong sourcing team or sourcing capabilities where you can then think about talent, not just from like a passive talent with the outreach, but also um, through events, through employer branding, through sending out these messages and creating these relationships with people in the market that are doing roles that you're looking to hire for now or in the future is an important aspect of the role too. You just brought up something that I think is really interesting, especially for folks that are pivoting or right there. So you brought up a role like data science and what I've noticed on most career sites and the way that most companies are organized, they're by departments and not really by function. So I could be a data scientist 
or breaking into data science. And there's probably five or six different departments within the company I could work for. I could work in finance. I could work on the product. I could work in HR. You know, part of me says, look, you need to tweak your resume for each of those so you stand out. But, you know, that's also could feel like a lot of work. But is there an opportunity there? Is there something that folks should think about in terms of like the inner workings of recruiting teams or companies or or even ways to find jobs by function rather than department? You know, every company is different and the way they set up their ATS is different. But But is there something there for people looking to get into companies? It's also challenging internally, too, because every role and department will then have their own recruiting team. Um, so they're not always set up by function either. So a situation where the left hand may not know what the right hand's doing, where a, <laughs> like a candidate may want one opportunity, but then they have to talk to a completely different department. That was a challenge we had also at Google, just the scale and the scope. And there was a lot of technical positions there. And I think... Working at a company too, where a lot of the tools are built in-house, like a Google, like a TikTok, there's teams that are going to be dedicated specifically to internal teams, but the majority of the employees want to work on tools that are impacting external clients. And so you start having this turn of employees that are in one group that want to pivot to another because they want to get more towards a product that's touching the market. And I think from a candidate side, some people might just want a foot in the door, right? To just say, hey, this is an opportunity for me to learn and grow. And then maybe I can take an internal move to something else that I want to do. Um, other times, I think it depends how the company is structured. Usually uh, teams are set up by either a business function and then they'll have recruiting teams that will focus on a certain profile. So it might be a data scientist. Other times, there could be also these internal teams. Like we had one at TikTok where their job is just to partner with all the different recruiting teams and they're more of a internal search and sourcing function. So if you can get connected to one of those groups and they can potentially like pivot you around to different roles as you start to explore. Um, but it is a little bit more challenging. I think sometimes working through the sourcers could be interesting, which are the people that are going out there and proactively having those passive conversations because they might have a bigger viewpoint on roles outside of just specifically the business function that the recruiter is supporting just because they'll support multiple recruiters. And you use this language a couple of times. So for anyone who's not familiar, that recruiters have language of active and passive. And my understanding is, correct me if I'm wrong, is active is someone who applied. Passive is someone who the company has like reached out to. They may be job searching, but it's you initiated versus they initiated. Is that right? Exactly. Yeah. And nine times out of 10, the passive candidate is happy in their role and they need somebody from their company to engage with them, to draw them into the interview process because they're not applying in. So one of the ways to discern that is this nifty open to work feature on LinkedIn. But, you know, one thing I, I want to start to try to understand is like, what are your, I'm assuming you use LinkedIn recruiter or you have for sure. What are your go-to filters. So I'll start with mine just because I've been using it for our own recruiting lately. I usually go, I use the keywords field and I will put in the specific skills. So most recently I was filling for a, an engineering role and I put in the actual language that's really important for this backend engineering role. And I also have like a list of like 30 companies that I would like to have been in their past. Now that's just one search. You know, you know, some companies that I think did some like really cool stuff on the back end or front end doesn't necessarily mean we'll hire them. 
And, uh, and then for years of experience, I've used like graduation year as a proxy, right? Even though not everyone puts it. So again, all these you have to do like on and off, but I think those are, and then location since we only hire in the U S you know, and that'll still give me like 5,000 candidates as a result. Uh, but like, where do you go? Like when you're, when you're building out your queries in LinkedIn recruiter? Yeah. So the interesting thing when I first joined recruiting was you had to write out these Boolean search strings, like from scratch. I went on an interview once and they made me whiteboard a Boolean search. And, <laughs> and now you have tools and technology that helps do everything for you. So it's amazing just to see the difference in uh, nine years. But with the tools, with the different uh, filters, I think it's important to look there underneath where they identify if they're open to a role. There's also other filters there if they're following your company, if they're interacting with, with individuals of the company, um, there's ways to know if there's a higher chance of them reaching out, reaching and responding back to you. And you use those? Like, do you find those helpful? I do find them helpful. I think it's it shows that they have an interest somewhere, like at some level of interest with your company. And I think that helps to at least start a conversation. Um, within the other search tools, I do use the keywords function. There are some diversity type of filters like veterans. If that's a population that you're looking to attract, there's a filter for veterans. Um, you can also search by other organizations. If there's a, a group or organization that might have talent that is aligned to what you're looking for, I've used that as well. Years of experience, I try to exclude people that if they work at the company or have worked at the company, usually LinkedIn recruiter will exclude them automatically, but sometimes your company could have multiple names and be registered in different ways. Uh, yeah. So I think it's important to look at that too. Across some of the other ones, I would say if you are looking for more junior talent, there is a area for colleges and schools and education. And so I think that could be something I just haven't spent as much time in that space. So that's one thing. I think it's really identifying once the search you create it and you can start to see what type of talent is appearing. You can start clicking into those profiles, see what other individuals are similar to them. You can see if there's any other keywords or, or tools that you can start adding in to help lower that number because 500 will be a lot of people to look through. So it's how do you like get down to a number that makes sense for the search that you're um, doing. So a big takeaway for me from what you just said is if there's a company you're interested, like follow them. That doesn't really mean like your newsfeed is going to get inundated. Most companies don't post anyway, but that is a very specific filter in LinkedIn recruiter that acts like, Hey, these are people that are legit interested. So when I do an outreach to them, their chances of answering me are much, much higher. I think people don't realize how hard it is to do the recruiting part. And so any signal you can give to the company, like, Hey, I'm willing, able, and interested you know, that is not applying, applying is different, right? But you could almost do both, you know, liking their content, engaging with it, that those actually send really powerful signals in a tool like LinkedIn Recruiter. And, you know, for me, that filter that I think the, it was like 6,000 when I did just the keywords and that like engaged with your company, I think it's called, maybe I'll do like a YouTube video on this, was like 300. And I was like, oh, wow. There's 300 people who know that Teal exists. You know, if you're TikTok, everyone knows who TikTok is. But for Teal, I'm like, hey, these are people who know that we exist, that are interested in us. I want to reach out to them first before all these other folks, because I just think there's a much higher chance that they're going to reply to me. Exactly. Yeah. And it 
already establishes this relationship that exists. It's just you haven't spoken to each other yet. Or maybe you've interacted through the product and it's just thinking about how do you take that to the next level of potentially being employees and an employer. All right, switching gears. Let's go back a little bit to understanding the org, right? Which I think is, it's a valuable skill set and it takes a little bit more like detective work and sleuthing. It, there's some cool sites like theorg.com that are starting to map org charts and things like that. But I think when we onboard, these things become really important and it's a topic you're interested in. And so like, so now you land the job, but you know, you sign your offer letter. It's like, woohoo, you, you actually haven't started until your first day on the job. Offers can get rescinded and things like that, but we won't go down that fork in the road right now. So you sign your offer. What are some of the signals the company's looking for after that? Well, you know, what are things that you've seen candidates do that the hiring manager is like, oh, that's great. I think this is going to go really well. Yeah, I think if there's a way to connect the team, this might be more on the team side, uh, the hiring manager. But just an introduction email message. One of the things I loved about the team I joined at Google, I felt like I didn't belong at first because I was moving from banking to tech. I got an email with a GIF from every single team member. And it was all these fun videos and little GIFs welcoming me to the team. And it just made me feel really welcome. And it was a way to interact and get to know a little bit more about who are the people that I'll be partnering with? Who are the people I didn't get to meet through the interview process, but will now be part of my day-to-day team? And that's something that I actually saw like go over really well. I think also if you are onboarding, I'm just making sure that you have everything you need to be successful, meaning that if you need the technology and the tools and you need to be at a certain place at a certain time, making sure that you follow all the email trails and just get things done that you need to do so that way you can start on time. I think those are some of the key signs that somebody leading a team would find to be helpful as someone is joining on day one. Yeah, there's a lot of like micro signals that are funny and look, they're they're all judgments. And I think we're all taking in as much information as we can to kind of shape some version of the prediction of the future so we don't get hit by a car or whatever, you know? It's like, and I think that when it comes to onboarding, it's a really funny thing, right? Because you just made this very big decision. You made a big company or a little company. You just brought someone into the company and everyone wants that to work. But you also want to have like your spidey senses up for like, are we going to have to course correct? Did this work? Did this not? Because at the end of the day, it's kind of a gamble on both sides, right? Like we go through this very short abbreviated process. It's trying to be as sensitive of everyone's time as possible. But at the end of the day, we don't know what it's like to work with each other. And I think that it's also not the time to like put your guard down in a weird way. When you land the job, it's like, relief. It's like, no, now is actually, now you're in a different kind of spotlight. Now, like people want to be really happy that they made that hire. They don't want to have any regret. There was that person that was behind you that they chose to pass on and pick you instead. You don't want them being remorseful about that. And so things I've seen is like, you know, people like don't fill out their, again, as a little company, we see everything, bigger companies, but I wouldn't even be surprised if hiring managers ask the HR teams like, hey, did they set up their stuff? Are they ready? Have they been engaged? You know, it's like like day one, like, oh yeah, I haven't signed up for Slack yet, or I haven't even done any, I haven't filled out my paperwork in the HRIS yet. In our case, it's like just works. And it's like, what are you waiting for? You know, there's just something about like a proactivity that you kind of want to see. And I get it. You know, I understand that 
hustle culture is bad, but there is something about like effort. Going back to the same discussion around like effort to the recruiter. If I just see zero effort, like I want to see that you care. You know, I don't know. I mean, do you do you see some of that on and like the bigger organizations? Yeah, I think the few times where like someone is just unengaged and is not responding. <laughs> Some candidates have pulled out even their acceptance the you know, that day before, the day of, like things like that, where you have to pick up on, it's more the spidey senses of something is off here. What's happening? Why are you, you know, not responding back to emails and welcomes to the team and filling out your information? So I think those are times where you as a recruiter or a hiring manager or just part of the process can start to think about is this person invested? Are they wanting to join and start on the right foot? And Or maybe is there an issue with the systems and tools as I've worked in places where maybe everything's going to a spam mailbox or maybe the email's wrong and the phone number's wrong or there's a bigger issue that needs to be taken place internally versus on the candidate. So I think there's a mixture of the two, but it's important to make sure that everything starts on the right path. And even if that's flights and you need to travel somewhere and do something to get to your first day, wherever you got to go, just making sure everything is done in a timeline that um, is provided. Is there anything that you'd call out as different in like a remote setting, right? Because I feel like when you go to an office, there's like also like, here's your desk, here's your computer, here's your paperwork. Like, you know, I remember at WeWork, we would have these, I don't know, Rocky would do these incredible like onboardings and it was, some of it was a little intense, <laughs> but you have to do chance and stuff. That was probably a little too much, but you know, everyone would kind of go through this process together and kind of get their computer set up and, and stuff like that. What things have you, have you seen be successful to better the chances of onboarding in a remote setting? Yeah, I also onboarded remotely in my last position. So it was strange sitting at home. My work laptop was actually still in the mail. So I logged on my personal laptop in my apartment and I <laughs> was questioning if this was actually really a new job or not. <laughs> but I think um, when it comes to being able to um, be engaged still, you're still part of an onboarding process, whether that's self-guided or through various sessions and making sure that you are staying engaged, staying, there's going to be tasks and certain processes that you have to do from the company side. But I think where it starts getting into more of how this gets set up on the right path, it's really when you start your team onboarding and moving from the company side to more of the team side, because some of the company things are going to be broad across, you know, it's a broad stroke. Everyone has to do this. This is all set up the same way. But when you move to a team, sometimes there's no onboarding. You're just in a sink or swim situation. And sometimes there's a lot of onboarding where you have months of sitting through trainings and going through a certain process. So it's really thinking about what do you need to be successful? Like, how do you learn? And that's something that I think is important to communicate with your leadership to just explain what are the things that you've found to lead you to success in the past and what kind of support do you need to get there? And from the leadership, it's also having that open dialogue and conversation. What are the first 30, 60, 90 days look like? How can I best support you? What kind of resources and tools can we give you? And um, how do we start breaking down some of those barriers? That way you feel welcomed and part of the team. So the thing about onboarding, it's I'm at this kind of tension between 
you know, I'm being the advocate for the candidates as Teal. That's kind of our core mission. And then also hiring. But at its core, I just have a fundamental belief that your career belongs to you. And I used to call it the career lazy river. You can't just kind of like wait. And so even though, yes, a company should onboard you, if they don't, let's say a team, because I think you're right, most companies are better, but the team doesn't, it's still kind of on you, right? You could be like, well, they did a bad job. It's not my responsibility. I don't need to. And it's like, okay, you could take that position and that posture. But at the end of the day, the person losing the job is going to be you. Right now, if that's your reflection of the company, you're like, hey, this place is disorganized, then fine, start looking for a job somewhere else. But if you don't want to do that, there is an aspect of trying to take the steering wheel on this and say, okay, what can I do to make sure this onboarding goes well? Right? And so what would you say are things that people could do proactively to better the chances of the onboarding going well? Yeah, I think one of the main things is talking to people. So if your company or team sets you up with an onboarding buddy, Great. Amazing. You know, you have a resource there. If they don't schedule time with anyone and everyone get to know who does what well, what kind of tips and resources can you learn from everyone else? And then how can you craft your own way of working? Because what's worked for other people might not work exactly for you in that same way. So it's really picking up what are these different ways of working? What's the different tools and resources? What are these acronyms and what information can I use to help move my career forward in the best light. I think one thing that's important to know is, you know, you're here, you were given an opportunity, but maybe what worked for you in your last employer is not what's going to work for you here. And so it's also being adaptable to say, I'm going to move into this new role, this position. I'm going to try to take in all this information and I'm going to have to change in a way that allows you to be successful based on everything that, you know, is provided out in front of me. Another thing about, you know, and this is you know, it's kind of that networking conversation we started with, right? It's like when you start, you want to learn. But I think this is also one of those situations where you can be mindful of like how you network and the questions you ask and effort becomes incredibly apparent. Going back to like networking and the effort that you put in, like if you, you know, ask a lot of questions, be curious but also don't ask things you can Google. You know what I mean? Like there's these questions that are just kind of like lazy questions. It's like, hey, what team are you on? It's like, you can find that out, right? Like go to my LinkedIn profile. And so I think it goes back to like, help me help you. And I think those things are, again, it's nuanced and people might think, oh, that's so much work. Now I have to research the person before. It's like, well, yeah, you're asking for 30 minutes of their time for a coffee talk. They have zero obligation to meet with you. They've got meetings. They've got deadlines. They've got, you know, important things to do. And you're asking them to take 30 minutes of their time to meet with you and help you inculcate and learn about the company. So, yeah, do your research. Put in the effort. Show that you've got, like, thoughtful questions. And I think a lot of people miss that. They're just like, oh, let's just, just the act of getting the coffee talk is good. And it's like, that's not enough. At least that's my take. If you really want to show a good first impression, like what have you seen be successful? And do you have any tips on, on kind of how to do that better? Yeah. One of the things that is important is to actually like write down, take a notepad, a pen, a paper, something where you can write down the things you're learning through these conversations. And when you meet back with your manager or your onboarding buddy or whoever it is, Share with them. These are the people I met with. These are all the things I've learned. And then start to really craft 
like the way that you will be using this information moving forward. I think that's something that also through these conversations, you can learn about maybe different meetings you want to attend. You can get added to, you can start job shadowing people. You can show up in a way where, you know, maybe it's not through necessarily one-on-one conversations with these people, but now you can start to see how do they do their work and how can you start to learn from them in a way that is beneficial to you and you can help them out in the future in the same way as you'll hopefully be partners through that. So I think those are some things that I would really suggest is just making sure that you're sharing back the things that you're learning and also sending thank you notes and letting people know that you appreciate their time. One of the tools that we even had at Google, you could give people spot bonuses, not to pay people for their time for everything, but if someone did something that was you know above and beyond outside of the ordinary and you want to thank them for that, there could be meaningful ways where it can even be like a, a recognition that you can send them a internal congratulations and they can use that for their performance review, right? It's like, how do you give back to someone else who's also giving up their time for you? So thinking about making it more of a mutual benefit. And then also, I think similarly to how what we were discussing before, if there are certain things you're looking to learn internally, ask the person you're meeting with who does this specific thing really well or who knows how to use this one tool because that's the tool that I want need for my job. And you know, that's one area of opportunity that I have for myself. So you can start to leverage the people you're meeting with to then figure out how you can better support yourself moving forward in the future. That's a great tip. And I think, again, it's that specificity. Do you feel like there's an opportunity to go back to the JD at that point and kind of like mine that for for insights now that your sort of job is secured? Sometimes. <laughs> I think in the startup world, a job changes every day. Like maybe there's a, you know, there's an outline and you get into the job and it, maybe you're wearing 10 hats now instead of the three that they originally planned. <laughs> so, or maybe the company you just creates a whole nother product and all of a sudden you're moving in a different direction. So I think in those situations and cases, it's a little bit more challenging to go back to a job description and say, you know, this is what I was hired for and this is, what I thought I was going to be doing. You have to be a little bit more flexible given the environment. If you are working at a more, I would say, structured environment where you're in a job that has been around for a while and the company's been around for a while and you know what the job outlined is exactly the role that you're doing, then yes, I think that's a fair case. So you can go back to it and start to think about, okay, these were the requirements. What can I bring to the role? What did I highlight through the interview process? And what are the things that I need to now work on to get better at, to make sure I can move myself to the next level in this position? So we'll end on this one, but like 90 days have passed, you know, and this is sort of like abstract 90 days. No one's really counting. I call it sort of the moment of mutual acceptance. You know, that might take a while. It's like, I like being here and I think they like me being here. What would you say are some signals that it's going well? Yeah, I think it's important to have that type of check-in. When it comes to what's going well, what's not going well, 
it depends on what your performance is evaluated against. And that's something that it's important to know and ask your leadership team, how am I being assessed in this position? And, and what do I need to do to meet or exceed those expectations or what makes me fall below them? So that way you can start to really think about that more strategically as you know, these are the goals that I now have to reach and what's the timeline I have to reach that in. I think it's also fair to get like 360 feedback. So you can ask peers, you can ask your leadership team, you can ask someone who's mentoring you, what am I doing well? What can I work on? And this is, these are my goals and these are some of the things that I need help um, getting towards. I think another thing that maybe isn't as tied to this, but can really help set you apart and help get you on another track too. At 90 days, there should be some areas of opportunity you've identified within the team and the company. And you can say, you know, there's gaps here. I've met with these people. I'm doing, starting to do the work. And there's just like one or two things that I'm finding that aren't working well. So actually coming through with a solution to say, meeting with your leader at 90 days and to maybe present and say, this is what I've you know observed. This is what I would suggest. This is a potential solution. Are you comfortable maybe with us testing this out, trying this out, seeing where that can go? And that can really help set you apart from anyone else who's onboarding in the role, just heads down doing the work. You're now coming with potential solutions. You're helping to change how the team's working, creating efficiencies. And that's something I really encourage people to do and think about is this like introspective moment where you can say, how do I now get this role like and make a difference here in this position in this company and kind of put my stamp on it. So that's something I would suggest doing as well. How soon do you feel people should do that? Right, Because waiting 90 days, 90 days is, you know, in startups, that's, you know, a significant amount of time in a bigger company. But like, when do you think is a good time to start to get those those pulse checks? Yeah, I personally suggest if you're just starting out to have weekly conversations, if you are needing this like 30, 60, 90 days, then, you know, maybe those are more formal and the one-on-ones per week are just touching base on like what's happened this week, what can you work on in the moment, whereas the longer times help to give that more like holistic view of your performance. So I would suggest weekly, if you need something that's even more frequently as you're just ramping up, then great. But, you know, sometimes not everyone has all the time for that. So maybe that's like once a week and then goes to once every other week, or maybe this like monthly check-in. I know in my last company, we set goals every two months. So every two months, we would have a whole new cycle where we're doing performance around what took place in this time frame and what can we work on for the next two months. So depending on how the company is working, I think that's something to think about. Definitely at least like a quarterly or biannually like performance review official one. But if you're just ramping up, I think weekly is definitely beneficial just to help get things on the right track. Well, there was a lot of good insights in here. Thank you. This was awesome. I had a lot of fun having this conversation. You put out some great content. I think your main channel is LinkedIn, but how can folks follow along with all the great insights you share? Yeah, so I do post on LinkedIn. My handle is backslash Sir Stone. Maybe there will be other platforms in the future, but for now you can find me on LinkedIn. Amazing. Well, Harry, thank you so much. This was super insightful. Uh, I'm excited for everyone to get all these tips that you shared. 
Awesome. Thanks for inviting me.